For scripture reading this evening, we turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. We will read that chapter, Daniel, chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. When the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but while favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning and knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And what follows is our text this evening. Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, for he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink, and let our countenance be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. And as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink, and gave them pulse. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, 
and among them all was found none, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. And Daniel Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. We read that far in God's holy word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the book of Daniel is a significant and important book in both the Old Testament and, of course, Holy Scripture. It's named after its author, and the chief character in the book, Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, or my judge is God. The Hebrew Bible also saw that this book is somewhat different than all other books. It was not included with the rest of the prophets. It was not viewed as prophecy nor exactly history either. But the Hebrew Bible included it in a group of books called the Kethuvim, the Kethuvim or the writings. So it was included with the likes of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and the Chronicles. You see how diverse that group is. But of all them, only Daniel includes not only history, but prophecy. He was a prophet. And in many ways, we may view the book that way too. We are going to see and should see that this book really is much like the New Testament book of Revelation. It's a book that kind of stands apart in the New Testament and really functions much as the book of Revelation does with regard to the Old Testament. The canonicity of the book, what we mean by that is whether or not it ought to be included in the Holy Scriptures, and not simply as the Apocrypha or some other uh, well-known writings, but actually inspired Scripture, has been doubted and has been controversial for a number of reasons, including this, that it is not entirely written in the Hebrew script or language. But there's a large portion of the book of Daniel that was written in the more modern Aramaic. Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke. But nevertheless, what makes it conclusively part of the Scriptures and what settles the issue in spite of any controversy is the fact that Jesus himself quotes from the book in the book of Matthew chapter 24, which you will recognize is where he gives the signs of his return, thus indicating, again, the importance of the book both in the Old and New Testaments. The history that's found in this book begins in the year 605 B.C. We read here that it occurs in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, 
which really is the very same thing as the fourth year of Jehoiakim that we read about in the book of Jeremiah. That's not a discrepancy, but what accounts for that is the difference between the Chaldean or Babylonian way of recording the reign of a king versus the Hebrew way. One begins in the very year that a king is ordained, and the other disregards that part of a year. So we consider it to be the fourth year, like we read in the book of Jeremiah, and that depends, of course, on how counts that year. But the fact is, it's 605 B.C. that this begins. Judah had been for many years under the rule of Egypt. That had been under the rule of Egypt ever since the death of King Josiah. You remember Josiah had gone to battle with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. And he not only lost that battle in the plains of Megiddo, from where we get the name Armageddon, but he had lost his own life. Pharaoh Necho, who now controlled Israel, had appointed Josiah's son Jehoahaz as king, and then when he was removed, had appointed his other son Jehoiakim to be king. And it is now in the fourth year of that king, Jehoiakim, that Nebuchadnezzar comes and plunders Jerusalem. What happened is this, that Pharaoh Necho decided to go to battle with the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, and they met in 605 B.C. on the plains of Carchemish, and Pharaoh is defeated. So that Nebuchadnezzar now controls not only Egypt, but all of Palestine. One of the first things that he does on his return is besieges Jerusalem. Then he sacks Jerusalem. He does not burn the temple and destroy it yet. That's coming 19 years from now. But he does plunder the temple. He takes a number of the gold and silver out of the temple and places them in the treasury of his own God. At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar also orders that his military round up the best of the noble class to take back to Babylon. And among that nobility and that higher class in Israel that remains is Daniel, his three friends, and we know the prophet Ezekiel. They are all taken to Babylon at this time, 605 B.C. That's before, 19 years before the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. The text records what happens to Daniel and his three friends almost immediately upon arriving in this strange new land which will become their home for the rest of their lives. That's the idea when at the end of the text we read that Daniel continued even unto the first reign of King Cyrus. Daniel will be taken captive in Babylon and remain there the rest of his life Able to see, however, the return of the people back to the land. 
they are taken into the king's court. And they are done so, so that they might learn all of the considerable knowledge that the nation of Babylon had accumulated, the Chaldeans had accumulated, and given the privilege of eating the king's meat, the king's drink. But we read that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with that portion of the king's meat, so he refused to eat it. And we read, the result of that is the Lord blesses Daniel by not only sustaining his life, but by blessing his life there in the land of Babylon. What we have here in the text we consider tonight is really the theme of the entire book of Daniel. Perhaps you can sense by its quotation in the New Testament and the fact that many, many of the prophecies that are found in this book are repeated in the book of Revelation that this book has far greater significance than Daniel. The book refers to all the people of God. It's about the people of God. Daniel is a representative not only of young people and the faithfulness of godly young people, which he is, but it's the faithfulness of all the people of God as they live their life in a land of hostility in this wicked world. Daniel represents, therefore, the church significantly. Three times in the book, he is called the Lord's beloved, the same word that God uses for his church, his beloved. And so the theme of the book is God's covenant faithfulness. It is the faithfulness of God's covenant love preserving his people from being defiled, from being defiled in a land namely this world, this wicked world in which they are tempted to assimilate, in which they are tempted to become one with the world. God preserves them and He keeps them in that world. And He does so even under the greatest of circumstances, the most dire of circumstance. For as the book make plain, Nebuchadnezzar is no ordinary king, but a world ruler who represents the Antichrist himself, who shall appear before the Messiah comes. And therefore, the theme is the book of, is that God preserving His people from defilement, even throughout the whole New Testament life of the church, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ under the thumb, and even in captivity of the Antichrist himself going to consider that, therefore, under the theme, the Lord keeping His beloved from defilement. The Lord keeping His beloved from defilement, keeping in mind that that refers not simply to Daniel, but His beloved church. We notice the personal temptation, the believing confidence, and finally, the enduring reward. The personal temptation. We have to set up what is going on here and do justice to two things that are going on here. Number one, there is a temptation here that is at the heart of the story and a personal temptation, a 
a personal temptation for Daniel and even for his three friends, we find out. We want to do justice to that. It is a temptation not simply for all captives that are there or even all the people of God. Nevertheless, that temptation, which is personal to Daniel and his three friends, does indeed represent the temptation that all the people of God face as a church in this world. It represents really all of their temptations and the facets of all those temptations and all those that the children of God fundamentally face in this world. And that is the temptation of being defiled. Of being defiled with that which is unclean which would be the ruin of the people of God who are called to be holy. And that now, especially when under the rule and authority of one who is the Antichrist. That's what this is all about. That's what we must see. And that's what gives meaning to the various aspects of this temptation. So keep that in mind. Even as we look at this temptation, this personal temptation, it's important that what is being uh, taught here is a picture. The threat and the danger that faces us, and especially the church in the latter days. The temptation that faces Daniel, and of course his three friends also, is the most dangerous kind of temptation that there is. And that's because it's the most subtle kind of temptation. And the kind of temptation that can easily be justified to disobey, to go along with. Every temptation, of course, concerns the temptation to violate the will of God. That's what all temptations are. Temptations are to violate the will of God. And the most dangerous of those are always those that subtly tempt us to do that. And those that are easily justified if we would look at it simply from a human perspective and not by faith. So when we look at this particular temptation, we see in the first place that it's subtle because it might seem as if Daniel was actually being blessed and blessed greatly with rare and wonderful opportunities that he should seize. This wonderful opportunity, this amazing opportunity, is occasioned by something else that we ought to consider, which provides such a temptation and a threat, which was the policy of multiculturalism that was at the heart and center of Nebuchadnezzar's political and cultural domination. Nebuchadnezzar had deliberately enacted a policy of what today we would call multiculturalism. And he had done that, especially with regard to the higher classes that he conquered. His purpose was not to rule his land and his people necessarily by fear and brute force, nor simply to enslave those that were alive after he conquered them, but rather to assimilate them, 
to take all the peoples that he had conquered, all of their cultures, all of their knowledge, all of their languages, and assimilate them into one large nation or people. The Babylonians would benefit from all the considerable knowledge and understanding of the peoples they conquered. What happened to Daniel and his three friends was a part of that. He knew and understood that if he would take young people who had been well educated, and that was Daniel and his three friends, they were already very well educated, showed themselves to be quite knowledgeable, given quite a bit of understanding. They had smarts, we might say. By taking them into his kingdom, the way he did, even in the king's palace, that knowledge now would be shared. It would become part of the collective. The collective knowledge by which Nebuchadnezzar would rule and continue to conquer lands and peoples. But at the same time, he intended to inculcate his captives with all the considerable knowledge of Babylon, which at the time was the greatest in all the world, because exactly of that multicultural policy. Babylon would increase in that knowledge, but would impart it to others, and the king would use them as his counselors, and as we're going to see, even rulers. That's what provided this particular temptation. That policy op provided a lot of opportunities that allowed a man like Daniel and his three friends to easily justify what they were doing. It would allow them to remain part of the noble class to which they belonged. It would allow them to continue to enjoy the luxury and opulence that they were accustomed to back in Jerusalem. They would receive the world's best education at the time. They would be educated in all the considerable learning and sciences of Babylon. They would also become important counselors. They would assist in the rule of the greatest king alive at this time. They would assist him in assembling the most powerful, glorious kingdom on earth. This policy... And the opportunities that afforded them were especially tempting. And part of the temptation when you considered the alternative. Former enemies of Israel, like the nation of Syria, ruled simply with brutality. The Assyrians were famous for torturing their captives by killing them in the most gruesome ways you can possibly imagine, and by enslaving their captives with the kind of enslavement that took them to death. No such thing here. It was a great opportunity when you considered it, especially over against the plight of many other young men in Israel. There were plenty of other young men in Israel, but where were they? Many of them were dead. Many of them were taken captive and enslaved. Many of them had no hope and no future. 
They had lost their properties. They had lost their farms. They had been orphaned. They had lost their parents. They lacked an education. Many of them, in fact, had been for many years, been working already as slaves, essentially, in order to come up with the heavy tribute that a man like Pharaoh Necho had annually collected from his state of Palestine. If Daniel was a believer in common grace, he might even suppose that all that the king was doing was an expression of God's great grace toward that king, and thus also to him that this king, who seemed to be wise and kindly and beneficent ruler, was even better to him than his own rulers back in Israel. Perhaps God's grace, such was the temptation that faced Daniel. The temptation, I said, was dangerous because it was subtle, and subtle because there was a temptation also to violate what we would consider a seemingly minor law of God. What Daniel was tempted to violate was not exactly the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. It's not like he was being tempted to violate the law against murder or the law against adultery or even, strictly speaking, idolatry. But he was tempted to violate a very Jewish law, namely the Jewish dietary laws. You see, the king's meat would include food from all over the world. The best food from all over the world would include a great variety of food. Food quite exotic and even strange. And then there were all the foods that the Jews were actually forbidden to eat because it was considered by God and His law unclean. The Jews were forbidden to eat pork. If they were allowed to eat a certain meat, say beef, they weren't allowed to eat it rare or bloody. They weren't allowed to eat any sea creatures that were without fins or didn't have scales. So they couldn't eat crabs or shrimp or oysters or lobsters. They were forbidden from eating even certain birds like ostrich or eagles, storks or bats. And they were forbidden to eat almost all predatory animals like lions and bears. All of that was very well part of the king's meat. The king's meat also was offered to idols. The very idol that the king likely had put the gold from the temple in Jerusalem, that very idol, this food would have been offered to for the same reason that the gold from the temple was placed in the treasury of that God, to show that that God was supreme, that that God was really the giver of food, that that God was the one that Nebuchadnezzar and all under him owed their allegiance and service. And Daniel would have been aware of that. 
aware that eating such meat offered to such an idol was an indicator that he himself then served that God and recognized that God as legitimate, and he wanted no part of that. That's what it means when he said he was purposed not to defile himself, to defile himself with unclean food or food that was forbidden because it was offered to idols. The temptation was also subtle and thus dangerous because it was disguised under a cover of legitimacy and even necessity that made it easy to justify accepting the king's meat. Not only was there the justification, not only was there the easy excuse to say, well, I'll eat it due to the opportunities that afforded him. Just think of that. What's the problem? What's the problem with eating a little unclean meat? What's the problem with eating a little meat offered to idols when in fact the idol God doesn't really exist? Or what's the problem with eating a little meat offered to idols or a little unclean food when the benefit that results from it is so great? After all, I need to eat. After all, I live in the king's palace. After all, the king has appointed this meat. What a great opportunity. But there's even more. Consider why Daniel is where he's at. Consider the temptation for Daniel to think to himself, Maybe their God is more powerful than my God. After all, look at what my God has done. My God couldn't even keep his own people from idolatry. My God couldn't keep his people from all their filth and from all their sins so that a more powerful king, perhaps the king himself is more powerful than my God, has come over, besieged my city, taken right out of the temple of my God, all of his gold and silver. Maybe my God doesn't exist. So why in the world would I follow his dietary laws? Why in the world would I consider what he says to be true? You see the temptation? And then combine with the fact that it only has to do with food and drink. Combine it with the fact that who's watching? Who's going to care? Where are the Jewish leaders? Where are the princes and people that led the nation? They themselves have been killed or taken captive. They're nowhere to be found. Consider the temptation even further that most of them were corrupt. Most of the princes, most of the nobles, most of the rulers, most of the Levites were themselves idolaters, were themselves corrupt, were themselves the reason God had allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come and besiege the city and take captives. And now imagine this young man being tempted at the king's table was simply eating some of his meat and some of his drink. You see the subtlety of the temptation. Adding to the danger, adding to the temptation is also this. Let's not forget. It's not only the temptation of what results if he simply looks the other way, the temptation of the fact that if he said no, he would lose the opportunity of a good education. He could lose the opportunity of sitting at the king's table. He could lose all the wonderful opportunities, the riches and the pleasures that afforded him. But adding to the temptation is that if he said no, he could likely be killed. 
possible he could merely be cast into slavery like everybody else, but when you look at the reaction even of Melzar, the king's servant, the head of the eunuchs, the prince of the eunuchs, he's worried about his own head, what's a slave? What's a conquered Jew or a Hebrew who refuses to obey the king's order? Add that to the temptation. Now what the Word of God wants to impress upon us is that really represents you and I in this world. It represents who and what we are in this world. Only it doesn't concern dietary laws and unclean food and drink or meat offered to idols, does it? It does have to do with cleanness and uncleanness. In other words, it has to do with holiness or unholiness. It has to do not with dietary law, but the moral law of God. This is God reminding us as His church that we live in the Babylon in this world. We live in a world that is run not by the church, not by the leaders of the church, or the pope of the church, or any such thing. It's run by kings and princes of this world. Men like Nebuchadnezzar. And one day, it will be run by the Antichrist, whom Nebuchadnezzar simply is a picture of. But God's people have always lived their life in this world. They will live that life from the time of Daniel until Christ comes, and from when Christ came to when He returns again. And this is the Bible's way of reminding us there is a great temptation, one great temptation that faces the people of God. And it's not one that's going to look like a big red dragon. It's not going to look like a huge big threat. That temptation that faces you is a temptation that will destroy you. It will destroy you because it's a temptation to be like Babylon, to be one like Babylon, and thus to be destroyed with Babylon. And that temptation is a bigger threat than you realize. Oh, it doesn't come in the form of someone saying, commit adultery, go out and kill your neighbor. It's simply the temptation to assimilate. It's a temptation to assimilate, however, in such a way that we live contrary to the law of God. The amazing thing about Israel and Babylon is there is a certain amount of assimilation that goes on. We're talking now about the antithesis. You all know the word and the calling that we have to live the antithesis. If you look at the antithesis, you will understand that it's a spiritual separation, not a physical one. And that's reflected right here in this book, where there is a certain amount of assimilation. You're going to find Daniel with a Babylonian name. You're going to find Daniel wearing Babylonian clothes. You're going to hear Daniel speak the Babylonian language. He will be educated in the Babylonian arts and sciences. He will be a Babylonian counselor in the Babylonian kingdom itself. There is a certain amount of assimilation. He is indeed going to eat the king's meat. Not all of it. And yet, Daniel is never one with them. He is never a Babylonian. Time and time again in the book, we're going to come across this young man, and then later as an older man. He serves one Lord. He serves one Master. He has one King that he obeys. And obeys even when it requires defying the earthly king who has the power and ability to throw him in a lion's den or chop off his head. 
It's the temptation, beloved, to live like the world, to be like the world, to live in their sin and live in their iniquity. And the temptation to excuse it in the same way. Oh, it's just about food and drink. It's just about boats and cars. It's just about houses and property. Surely those things are legitimate and good in and of themselves. It's the temptation whereby we violate the law of God with the excuse that, well, this is something we need. This is something that provides an opportunity. Surely God would not deny me this or that opportunity or this or that goodness. It's the Word of God coming to us and telling us, watch out. Ask yourself once, right now, if you were in Daniel's seat at the king's table, would you purpose yourself not to be defiled? Oh, I know we're not Jews, but it's the same question today, living in our land, even though we don't have a ruler like Nebuchadnezzar over us, are you purposed that you will not, no matter what, no matter the threat, no matter the advantage or disadvantage, you will not defile yourself with the sin and the wickedness of this world contrary to the law of God. That's what we have here. Now as a part of this, We'll talk next about the believing confidence of Daniel. There was a temptation. There was also a confidence, a determination. And again here, we want to lead into it. We're going to look at Daniel. We're going to look at his faith. We have to. That's what the story is all about. Yet we all know and believe that it's Jehovah God who's preserving him. And there ought to be no doubt about this. This is the story of God's faithfulness. This is the story of God preserving Daniel and simply look at the story and see. Ask yourself, how in the world does this man, Daniel, this young boy and three friends, find himself at King Nebuchadnezzar's table? How does he find himself even in this dilemma in the first place? Read sometime again the history of the nation of Judah and Jerusalem at this time. Read how corrupt it was. So that even when you had Josiah, King Josiah, who the Bible said was even more faithful than David, there was no king like him. In his zeal to eliminate idols and eliminate the false worship and to deal with all the wickedness, he couldn't stop it. It was that rampant. The people were that determined to live in idolatry and fornication. The land reeked with it. There had been severe persecution of the people of God. We read in the Scriptures that the streets ran red with the blood of the faithful. The prophets were butchered in ways that you can't possibly imagine. And then think about all the things God had sent. Go back and read again. Enemy after enemy. First Assyria. Then Babylon. Read what they did. Read what was done. What they did to the people. What they did to their crops. What they did to their farms and fields. What they did to the people. To the women. To the men. To the children. 
butchery that you can't imagine. Imagine living then. Imagine living in those times. And then there's a Daniel. Now who taught Daniel these things? Where did Daniel learn? Where did where does this come from? And the answer is obviously he must have had believing parents. But again, believing parents who were either in captivity back to Jerusalem or likely dead. That Daniel's an orphan. That he had seen these butchers kill his own parents before his own eyes. He saw that. Very likely. Or he'd been orphaned some other way. And his three friends too. So yes, he was a member of the noble class. But the point is, there's nothing here from a human perspective that explains Daniel being here. That explains his faith. That explains his concern and his purposing not to defile himself. That's what makes it so amazing. It's also to our shame when we're not defiled. When we're not determined to not be defiled. That's what makes that even more gross. Here we are. We have all kinds of instruction. We have the Word of God. We have faithful priests and Levites who teach us this Word of God. We have prophets who aren't being butchered. We, we have all kinds of advantages. And yet, how often isn't the case in the church where being defiled? Being defiled with unholiness and wickedness like the world? Uh, what's the big deal? Do, do you see how this is the story of God and His grace? This is the story of God's power. And God is highlighting that. That's another feature of this book. It's a reminder that such is the love of God, such is the greatness of God, such is the grace of God, and also now the severity of God. Behold, the grace and severity of God. That's what the Scriptures and creeds many times bring to our ears. God is not a God who winks at sin. God is not a God who leaves sin unpunished. God is a God who judges it. And if you doubt that, simply watch what he did to his church. In only 19 years from now, he's giving Israel, Judah, opportunity to repent, to turn from their sins. They're not going to do that. And he's going to allow the same king who's offering Daniel food and drink right now, who seems to be an agent of common grace, to destroy his beloved city, to lay the temple of Solomon to the ashes, to strip it of all of its gold and silver, because the people refused to repent and lived in ungodliness and wickedness. That's what God will do. If you ever think God won't destroy the PRC, guess again. Live in wickedness and idolatry and fornication, and God will destroy the PRC, because you don't need the PRC, just like he didn't need the tribe of Judah. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need the temple of Solomon. Oh, he, in his grace, raises it up, uses it for his purpose, but he will also take it away and destroy it. That's the severity of God. Don't ever forget it. If you think you can just succumb to temptation and it doesn't matter, if you think that you can just live eating and drinking whatever you want, doing whatever you want, living however you want, even though you know it's in violation of God's law, with all sorts of excuses and justification, God will destroy you and your home and the church you live in. That's the story. But God also teaches here how He always preserves His church. He always preserves His people. 
and shows that he's the one doing it because here in the opening chapter, in that wicked and corrupt people of Judah, which I remind you is a picture of the church and especially the church before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there yet is a Daniel and his three friends. Three friends too, not just Daniel, but three friends who have the same concern. And they happen to be the one plucked by Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers and brought back to Babylon. And when you look at Daniel and you ask, why does he have this determination not to be defiled? The answer is, God gave him faith. Nothing else explains it. If you look at the situation that he's facing, it's not courage. It's not earthly wisdom. It's not earthly anything. It's faith. By faith, he believes the Word of God, understands that Word of God to be true, understands God, knows God, and believes God. That's what's being brought here. And what does he believe? Ask yourself, what does he believe? What explains his behavior about that belief? Well, it's basically what I just explained to you. He knows God. He knows God is the one, only, true God. He knows that as mighty as Nebuchadnezzar is, and as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar is to make all sorts of decrees, so that if a young boy decides not to eat his meat, he'll chop off his head, and we're going to see the kind of power and authority that Nebuchadnezzar has, his rage at being defied, God is greater. God is more important, and God's Word is far, far more significant for us than anything any earthly king can say. What he believes is that he must obey his God. And he must obey that God no matter what happens. No matter what follows from that. He must, first of all, not eat what the king has provided simply because it's wrong. It doesn't matter the opportunity it provides. It doesn't matter that he needs it. It doesn't matter what comes from it. And it doesn't matter if the king takes his life. Why? Because he believes that God will care for him. And not now care for him just in a simply an earthly, physical way. Why do I bring that up? Because especially be aware of temptations that come in that form. It shouldn't surprise us that this is the same kind of temptation that faced our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did it come? Well, you understand the devil is behind all this. The devil is behind all this. He knows what he's doing. The devil is behind these temptations. And they work. They work often with human beings. They don't work with the people of God. And they especially don't work with the Christ, which is why they came to him. Food and drink, right? Just turn stones into bread. What's the big deal? Well, we face similar temptations. They are subtle. They are small. They are quiet. And it's very easily to justify failing in them. Even by saying, well, God is faithful, God is gracious, it doesn't really matter. Again, that is not faith. That's unbelief. That's wickedness. That's being defiled. That leads to the road to hell. That leads to the gates of hell. That is exactly what this is warning against. Daniel does not take that attitude. And he's not special here. What Daniel represents is you and I. What he represents is the true child of God. How he lives in this world. It's not like, well, we become sort of a Daniel. 
Maybe perhaps if we do this, we'll become sort of like Him, and that's a good ideal. No, He represents the church and all the people of God in this world. They do not live in defilement. They will not be defiled. They are purposed not to be defiled. And they will lose their life for it. Because that's how faith lives. That's how faith thinks. And so when a temptation comes along and says, you know, this is what you ought to do. This is what you ought to do. You ought to divorce that lousy creep of a husband you have. Your life will be a whole lot better. Faith says, no, I mean. That would be unbiblical and wrong. You know what you ought to do? You ought to take that job. Even though that job might require you to rebel against your employer because your life will be a whole lot better. Faith says, I will not be defiled by that. Don't minimize that, beloved. Don't minimize that that has contributed greatly to the destruction of the church. That kind of thinking, that way of thinking. Why is it that the church that was so large and so grand and so glorious with cathedrals all over Europe today can hardly be found? How'd it get there? The answer is the members didn't really care about being defiled. Didn't think it was that great a danger. Didn't think it meant that much. Perhaps even justified it with all kinds of excuses about God's grace and everything else. That's a lie. God's grace is powerful. God's grace also requires you to live a holy life. And faith believes it. You see, that's what underlies the antithesis. And you ask yourself, well, why is that? Does God require that so that now we can become His children? No! God requires it because you are His children. His children will be holy as He is holy. They can't be anything else. You cannot be a member of Judah and a member of Babylon at the same time. It's impossible. You cannot be a member of the church and a member of the world. It's impossible. And you cannot be holy and unclean at the same time. It's impossible. In his own childlike way, Daniel believed that. He knew that. That was what explains his purpose. And of course, what explains that faith is God Himself. It is rather sick and gross. It's an abomination, really, when we appeal to God in order to sin and fall into temptation, isn't it? We can appeal to God's grace, then we need to appeal to the power of that grace and what it actually does. And that's the story here. And let's remember, this happened in the Old Testament period of types and shadows when the Messiah had not even come yet. Now, another thing that Daniel believed and what moves him and motivates him is what he knows about God and His reward. God blessed what Daniel did. That's the story. He refuses the king's meat. And he says, give me vegetables. Now that isn't because vegetables were better for him. They would naturally result in a better appearance. But the exact opposite. Everybody knew it. Everybody was shocked when they saw that after ten days eating that, water and vegetables, that his appearance was better. Why? Because God had performed a miracle. God had done that. Well, what's going on there? 
Well, God was blessing his faithfulness. God was rewarding his faithfulness. I really don't care what you call it, but that's what God does. Now, it is true that God could have very well done the exact opposite, and Daniel could have lost his head, but God still would have rewarded his faithfulness with everlasting life. <laughs> but he believed God would do that. He believed in God to do that. And it's amazing how this story leads from here, it, in, in, it hints at it at the very last verse, and Daniel continued to the first year of Cyrus. Now why is that there? And the answer is, you need to compare Daniel and, let's say, Nebuchadnezzar. Or compare Daniel and all the rest of the nation of Judah. Compare him to those who had trusted in their idol gods. Compare him to those who fell into temptation and didn't care where they defiled. Compare them. Where are they? They're in the grave. They're dead. They're damned. Compare him to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's this king. The greatest king on earth. The king who's going to be figured in a little bit as a gold head on a huge image of man. A, a fabulous kingdom. Something like the world has never seen in its opulence and greatness. And he's the head of it all. What happens to him? Well, he's going to go crazy. Number one, insane. He's going to lose his kingdom, be deposed for a time. But Daniel's going to outlast him. Daniel's going to outlive him. Daniel's going to see all the way to the next kingdom and even kingdom after that, really. God is with him. God cares to him. Nebuchadnezzar tries to kill him. Nebuchadnezzar tries to destroy him. Nebuchadnezzar tries to marginalize him. But every time there he is, God is keeping him. God is rewarding him. God is blessing him. And time and time and time again, God does that. That's the amazing thing about God's grace. God's grace is not only sufficient, and God's grace is not only powerful, but God has a way of rewarding and blessing His own grace. That's the amazing thing. That's what is pictured right here. Daniel, by faith, does the most foolish thing that you can imagine. Refuses all the king's meat, and God blesses it. God rewards that. Says, I'm going to make him the plumpest, fattest, nicest looking of the whole bunch. God rewards him by placing him in a place where even the king has to acknowledge he's better, ten times better than all the other people that I have. I'm going to try to kill him anyway, but Daniel believed that. That's what a child of God believes. A child of God believes that. A child of God believes, oh, oh. I lost my job, God will provide me with a better one. And if God doesn't provide me with a better one, well, God will turn that to good too. My husband walked out and abandoned me. God will make that turn out. God will make that work somehow. Oh, there's trouble and affliction that come with that, but God will reward the faithfulness of His people and His saints in that. Yes, yes, the world says I'm crazy for having six kids. But I believe that that's what God wants for me. And that's God's will for my life. And God will bless that. That's how a child of God lives. That's how a child of God continues in this world. And that's the story of this too. That you see is the theme. That you see is the story of Daniel. It's how God preserves His church 
in the most wicked of circumstances, in this life, in this hostile world, in all of its temptations, even the most subtle, even those that would defile us. He preserves us in the worship of His name, in the service of His name. That's how He preserves us. He preserves us in such a way that we serve Him, that we worship Him over against all odds. And then God blesses that worship. He rewards that worship. That. That is the story of Daniel. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word, Thy Word of grace, Thy Word of truth. We thank Thee for redeeming and saving us and giving us faith to believe. Help our unbelief. Give us the determination of faith that we will not be defiled in this world. That we will be faithful to Thee even as Thou art faithful unto us that we will live holy even as thou art holy. For this is our desire. This is what we desire above all else. For we find in thee alone is our joy and happiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.